The American Health Law Association is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 issues of 2021, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and insurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Welcome to today's podcast, which is part of the series covering the top 10 issues in health law for 2021. Today's topic is vaccination law in the age of COVID-19. My name is Valerie Rock. I'm a principal at PYA, and I'm out of the Atlanta area. I'm joined by Brian Dean Abramson. Brian is the author of the book, Vaccine, Vaccination and Immunization Law, and he is in Arlington, Virginia. Thank you, Brian, for joining us on today's podcast. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Brian, I have to say that these days we cannot make it through a conversation without discussing the COVID vaccine. I actually think it ranks higher than the weather is now on the list of conversation starters. So while it's top of mind, I've learned through reading your articles that the nuances of the laws impacting employers, employees, organizations, and individuals are complex and numerous and may actually conflict in some cases. So it is important for attorneys to have an understanding of the laws impacting their clients and for organizations to consider these laws as they create policies and react to employee concerns and situations. So let's dive a little bit deeper into some of the subjects you highlighted in the top 10 article. First, we have seen three vaccines receive regulatory approval to be distributed in the U.S. and two more in phase three clinical trials. With the dramatic increase in the use of the vaccine in the past few months, have you seen any litigation or other legal activity? The first uh, actual litigation filed by an employee against an employer seeking to mandate COVID vaccination uh, was filed in New Mexico Mm -hmm. by a prison system employee. Mm -hmm. And that is focusing on language uh, associated with the emergency use authorization, saying that people who receive the vaccine have to be informed of their right to refuse the vaccine. And that's being kind of stretched into this well, if I have this right to refuse it, then I can't be mandated to receive the vaccine. In a way, it's kind of like, uh, really, it's kind of like saying, you don't actually have to wear a seatbelt. If you don't really want to wear a seatbelt, you can just not drive your car. Um, But the fact that you have uh, this right of refusal doesn't mean you have the right to be employed in certain circumstances um, if you're not receiving the vaccine and your employer wants you to do that. Um, A lot has been made of the fact that uh, these vaccines have been issued under an emergency use authorization. Um, And it is actually very rare or has historically been for vaccines to be uh, approved in that way, generally because the health crises that we've had that require the use of that power have passed faster than a vaccine could be developed. Um, There's a precedent where an anthrax vaccine was released under an emergency use authorization. It was, in fact, one of the very first uh, EUAs ever issued. And the military tried to require uh, all of its officers to receive the vaccine, the Air Force specifically. Mm-hmm. And some officers balked at that and filed a lawsuit and ultimately received the relief that uh, 
um, because they were in the military and there was uh, law going back to when uh, people were being used as guinea pigs to test the effects of the atomic bomb. You can't test things on uh, the soldiers. You can't use soldiers as human test subjects without their consent. So that use was enjoined. Uh, and that was about 16 years ago. Uh, but it's important to, to know in this modern context, um, first of all, that is only a very specific uh, statute that applies to people in the military. So there's no analog for that in other professions. Um, and also, you know, I think it's very important to stress that not all EUAs are created equal. So the standard for issuing an emergency use authorization is a very low standard of, there just has to be uh, basically a preponderance of evidence that the, the pharmaceutical product, in this case a vaccine, mm -hmm. is more beneficial than it is harmful. And there have been um, substances that have been released under EUAs under that standard in the past. But the FDA has and has exercised the ability to kind of self-impose a much higher standard. So the standard of testing that they required for these vaccines before they were willing to issue an emergency use authorization um, was much closer to the standard they would generally apply for actual licensure of the of medication. Mm -hmm. And it's also important for anyone who's considering a vaccine policy to be aware that all of these vaccine manufacturers, uh, the, the ones for the three vaccines that have been uh, approved at this time uh, are planning to file for full licensure by the end of this year. Okay. Um, President Trump set up a process uh, when he was in office for anything COVID related to be immediately put to the top of the stack for review by the FDA. The Biden administration is continuing that, mm -hmm. which means that the licensure process uh, should go very quickly. So uh, it would not be at all surprising if we have licensed vaccines by the end of the year. And that's gonna come around before people know it. Um, so you have to already have planned in your vaccine policies the fact that there are going to be vaccines that aren't even under an EUA anymore. Uh, which ones those are and how that uh, comes about, those are the developments that we have yet to see. But as it stands, there is no law that says that you cannot mandate that your employees receive a vaccine just because the vaccine has been issued under an EUA. And, you know, as I said, this EUA was issued under much more stringent uh, requirements for showing safety and efficacy than EUAs typically have been in the past. Okay. So in line with that, we've been able to shrink the development time of the vaccine to less than a year. And so the five plus years it's taken historically, on the other side of distribution, we have the impact to the population and that could potentially be negative. So how long does it normally take a manufacturer of a vaccine to determine if it is negatively impacting the population at large? And will that time frame be impacted by the equally reduced distribution time? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, historically, if you look back, there was a rotavirus vaccine that was released in 1999, um, and it had gone through all of the typical phases of clinical trials. Normally you have uh, three clinical trial phases and they each take about a year and a half to complete. Um, and they study ever increasing numbers of test subjects and uh, look more and more searchingly 
at, you know, first, is this safe? Um, and secondly, is it effective? Does it actually work on the, on the condition that is being tested? And then third, really, is it effective for everyone? And there are, are there particular populations or situations um, where there are likely to be contraindications? Um, and that is something, uh, one of the reasons why that lasts for a year and a half is because you want to observe people over a long period of time to see hey, well, how long is this vaccine effective and are there any long-term effects uh, to be aware of. Now, generally speaking, if there are negative effects to a vaccine, if it, someone has uh, some portion of the population is likely to have an allergic reaction or something like that, you discover that very quickly. Um, most reactions to vaccines happen almost immediately after administration. And that is something that the manufacturers have been testing throughout this process. Um, and in fact, it's, it's uh, kind of important to note that to make up for the fact that these vaccines have been developed very quickly uh, in order to get kind of more robust testing information, they've used very, very large samples of people who are doing uh, the phase three clinical trials on. So instead of having four or 5,000 people in that sample, they had 50,000 people um, in a phase three clinical trial sample. And now of course, you know, we have the, uh, the real, you know, roll out to millions and millions of people. So if there were a lot of uh, really negative consequences to the vaccine, uh, that would become apparent very quickly. And it seems that at least for the, for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which were the first ones to roll out, um, there have not been, there have been a very uh, low uh, number of adverse effects. Um, but I had mentioned at the beginning, there was a rotavirus vaccine that was released in 1999 that went through all three phases of clinical trials and was put into use with the population. And it was only after it was put into use that it was discovered that in about one in 10,000 cases, it caused intussusception in infants, which is um, a very dangerous intestinal blockage. And so it was pulled from the market because that would be considered an unacceptable risk um, for the vaccine based on the circumstances of rotavirus and how um, dangerous that is by comparison. Mm -hmm. um, I am not anticipating uh, that kind of problem with any of the COVID-19 vaccines that have already been issued under uh, an EUA. Uh, there have been some questions reported about the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which does seem to have uh, fairly good effectiveness. It's also very interesting that the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are a very new technology in vaccines. They're what are called mRNA vaccines, right. uh, rather than using a piece of the virus itself, which vaccines typically use, or a dead version of the virus. They're just inserting a little strand of mRNA into uh, some of the, the cells of the body and doing exactly what the virus does, taking over the cellular mechanism for reproducing itself and producing something. And in this case, they're just producing that protein hook that the virus itself would produce to cause your body to develop a reaction against that. Um, they don't contain uh, adjuvants, which are these substances that are sometimes added to vaccines to provoke the immune system uh, that have been uh, kind of uh, deemed responsible for some of the allergic reactions that people have. And they don't contain a lot of other components that vaccines typically have. They're very kind of simplified and stripped down because they really only need to convey this mRNA strand. Um, 
So we're actually likely to see fewer um, bad reactions to those. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting how that develops as a technology. You know, there's mm -hmm. talk of, well, if this works for COVID-19, can we use the same technology for anti-cancer vaccines that are in right. development? <clears throat> right. A number of other purposes. Right. You mentioned the rollout and also the, um, the litigation related to the prisoner, um, but since the number of doses available is high and the concerns regarding the rollout of the distribution and prioritization appear to be, be nearly a non-issue. <clears throat> so if a, the phased in approach and rapid succession of the, phased, um, the phases decreased late litigation or have you seen any related actions? So the way things have rolled out quickly, has that actually decreased the possibility of litigation? Uh, well, I will say the rollout uh, has accelerated very quickly, and you know, it very right now it seems like things are going amazingly smoothly. Um, that is, that was not the case. You know, if you look back uh, a couple weeks or a month ago, you had cases where uh, there were people trying to steal the vaccine or jump the line uh, to a great deal. There, there still are people who want to jump the line, but I think. Um, the ones who are really dedicated to that have managed to do it already. But you know, there was a case in Florida where there were these uh, two relatively young women who tried to disguise themselves as grandmothers um, so they could receive the vaccine early. Interesting. Um, you know, and, and ethically, that's very uh, problematic. Uh, mm -hmm. Legally, there aren't really consequences for jumping the line if you're if you're able to. Uh, do that and misrepresent yourself either in terms of your age group or your medical condition um, or your affiliation with uh, some profession that is able to get the vaccine earlier. Mm -hmm. um, there was an entire class of students at I think Georgetown Medical School um, where the third year students were eligible to get the vaccine because they're actually out there helping to get the shots mm -hmm. and some second year students went and sort of you know, pretended to be third year students and got the shot. And uh, they did suffer some consequences for that within yeah. the school, but there aren't um, broader legal consequences. Um, but the fact that there now appears to be a, a real, uh, a really effective ramping up of vaccine distribution, um, that has kind of leveled out the, the desire of a lot of people to try and do line jumping. And now we've gotten to the phase where um, we're no longer really concerned, will we be able to get everyone the vaccine uh, within the next two months? And into the phase of being concerned about, are there a lot of people who aren't going to want to receive the vaccine? And is that going to affect our ability to uh, get to a point of herd immunity mm -hmm. and really to get out of the pandemic itself? Right. Um, and there's, there's uh, you know, an, uh, a factor in that equation that um, hasn't been very much considered, which is that we don't actually know how many people in the population have had COVID and have natural immunity to it. Right. Um, so it, we may get to a point where, you know, we get 55% of the population vaccinated and there's another 20% that we don't know about that has had COVID or we know a very small percentage of them had it because they got very sick, but there are a lot of people who had asymptomatic uh, mm -hmm. COVID. Um, and that taken together is enough for us to reach herd immunity. Uh, and that's you know sort of the ultimate goal towards getting the economy rolling again and having people able to uh, live as they did before 
this entire pandemic started. Right. Um, and that's a calculation that you know we'll, we'll kind of we'll kind of see as it goes along. Um, there'll be a sharp drop off in the number of cases reported because there are no longer vectors through which large numbers of cases can be transmitted. Right. Um, but you know, in the interim, uh, a lot of employers want to set up systems to have their employees vaccinated, and and we're going to talk about the, the different things that can be done uh, mm-hmm. in that regard. Uh, and you know, the systems that get set up aren't just well, we're going to do this to get out of this pandemic now. Uh, the fact of the matter is, COVID is going to be a long-term concern for our population. It's, it's entered the human experience, and it's not leaving uh, by itself. It's right. going to be around for uh, the rest of our lives, probably. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be one of the leading causes of death for the rest of our lives uh, among the population. You know, it's going to kind of supplant the place of the flu um, in taking that role as a, as a disease that's particularly afflictive of the elderly. Right. Um, and it's something that when we plan for vaccination policies, we're going to have to think about um, this as being likely an annual vaccination, like, like the mm-hmm. flu shot, mm-hmm. um, but something that, you know, in a lot of fields is going to be uh, considered uh, more imminent uh, that, it's, that it's needed than the flu shot has been up to this point. In line with that, um, what have you seen in the way of mandates and exemptions over the past few months, and what do you anticipate through the end of the year because of that? Um, there have actually been very few mandates implemented at this point. Um, the the employee in the in the New Mexico prison system is kind of uh, an exception to what the practice really has been, and that has been a lot of uh, employers developing policies to encourage and incentivize and facilitate vaccination and falling short of mandating it. Um, or if they do mandate it, uh, mandating it uh, for a very small segment of their employee population, you know, the, the employees who are most likely to physically come in contact with other people based on their job description mm-hmm. um, and to be very uh, open to accommodations um, and liberal in distributing uh, you know, if someone says I have a physical concern or um, I have a concern because uh, I'm, I'm pregnant or trying to get pregnant uh, or if they have a religious or belief-based objection, uh, employers have been very leery of saying, um, well, we're going to require this nonetheless. And if you have that sort of objection, um, we're either going to change the conditions of your employment and assign you to some other task or, or something like that. Uh, or we're going to separate you from employment. And that, that's what happened in the, the New Mexico prison employee case. Um, the employer said, we need you to be vaccinated. And if you're not going to be vaccinated, uh, we're going to terminate you. Um, that is something that you know I think employers do want to avoid. Uh, there are inevitably going to be some number of people who have uh, an allergy or some other condition that would be considered a contraindication to vaccination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ADA requires that you make a make a reasonable effort to accommodate those people if it doesn't impose an undue burden on the employer. Um, there are going to be some people who assert a religious objection to vaccination. Um, and for religious objections, it's, it's very interesting. The standard is a lot lower, um, but there are also a couple of cases where you have employees working for uh, what are uh, effectively religious institutions 
And a lot of hospitals, of course, are affiliated with religious organizations that are religious hospitals. And they do have more of an ability um, to deny religious exemptions. They have um, a little carve out in uh, the EEOC statutes um, that basically say, if you're a religious entity, you can, you can impose your interpretation of religious doctrine on people who are employed. Uh, so there are cases where entities in that, in that realm have been able to terminate uh, employees or say, tell employees, you're either going to be vaccinated or you're, you're going to be terminated and, and not have to grant a religious exemption. And you know it, it's a really substantial portion of the health uh, the healthcare field. Actually, if you look at hospitals that have that kind of affiliation, right. um, you know so that is a consideration uh, to keep in mind. Um, but even outside of that, uh, the uh, EEOC has said that COVID nineteen presents what is called a direct threat uh, that raises this direct threat standard, which lowers the, again the threshold. Uh, for employees, for employers to be able to mandate this for employees, um, because they're really protecting the lives of their fellow employees, um, ostensibly by being vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, one other uh, important factor is that not all the vaccines work the same. Um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines work by the same mechanism. Uh, Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines are both uh, kind of a different mechanism where they're using the actual a portion of the actual COVID-19 virus. Uh, in both cases, I think they were called an adenovirus vector or adenovirus vector vaccine. So they're using an adenovirus as kind of the body to carry this piece of the COVID virus that has been grafted onto the adenovirus. It's very interesting technology. Yeah. Uh, but if you have an employee who has an allergy or a contraindication to one of the vaccines, um, they may be able to receive one of the other vaccines um, or one of the vaccines that is still in development and and may uh, come to be released in the United States in the next couple months. Um, and you should have that reflected in your policies that you know employees are encouraged to determine whether if they if they have an allergy to one of the vaccines, determine whether there's another vaccine that they can receive um, and be very uh, aware of that and, and circumspect that. Um, so what what we really are seeing are incentivization programs, um, some efforts at facilitation, um, a lot of efforts at providing information to employees, directing them to the CDC website or directing them to other resources of information where they can find out uh, what has been determined about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. And one of the most effective things that employers have done is uh, they've asked employees who have received the vaccines and have had a positive experience with that to convey that experience to their coworkers. Mm-hmm. So that has been one of the best ways to really instill confidence in the vaccine among others and say, look, I received it and uh, it was fine for me. You know, I was a little bit sick after the second shot, but then uh, I felt better after a day and now I feel wonderful and, and I'm not concerned about getting COVID because I've been vaccinated. Right. So you mentioned EEOC, and <clears throat> I know you said that um, that the laws have been kind of shifting and changing over time as each kind of situation has come about, you know, because we've gone through this so quickly. Um, and the EEOC and OSHA may have laws that perhaps even conflict. So how do we um, make sure that we're on top of those laws and, and making sure that we're not in a situation where we, you know, get it, get I guess, a go against any of those laws. 
Yeah, that is that is also a conundrum. Um, we are very much uh, awaiting further guidance from these agencies, um, and uh, quite frankly, some greater semblance of coordination between them. Um, for example, the ADA, or sorry, the FDA has recently released uh, guidance for employers. Uh, among the things that they've recommended is that employers have uh, on-site vaccination clinics uh, once the vaccine becomes widespread enough for them to do that. And that's, that's a wonderful idea. It's a very effective way of getting your employee population vaccinated. Um, the only problem with that is that a lot of attorneys are advising their clients that, well, if you do have an on-site vaccination clinic, um, under the current readings of various statutes, that's going to implicate uh, HIPAA issues and ERISA issues. Um, you know, does that constitute an element of a wellness program? And by doing that, you have to also offer other components uh, of a wellness program that you may not be uh, doing now. Um, also, you know, the EEOC has said that you have to be very careful about the questions that you as an employer ask your employee. Um, it's prohibited to ask employees about their disabilities and so forth um, and, and to make work-related decisions uh, based on that. Uh, however, in the act of administering a vaccine, there is a, an element of that by which uh, the person doing the administering the vaccine has to ask you some questions about you know, your potential reactions to the vaccine and that can implicate uh, the ADA. So if you as uh, a company HR person hire a pharmacist or hire a pharmacy to come to your work site and administer the vaccine, well, now they're a contractor, they're working for you. So if that pharmacist who's giving the shots is asking people these questions, um, that is attributed to you asking the questions as the employer, and you could be in violation of the ADA for that. Um, so, you know, the EEOC uh, guidance that has been promulgated, and this is guidance that was promulgated in December of last year, mm -hmm. is uh, pushing people towards saying, you know, we don't want to have on-site vaccination. Uh, and that's kind of contradictory uh, the guidance being given by the FDA. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of problematic. That's something that needs to be resolved. Um, and also the EEOC has, uh, they gave guidance on incentives, which was, uh, it's been talked about a great deal that it shouldn't be anything more valuable than a water bottle because if you give too big of an incentive uh, only to those who have been vaccinated, it's kind of like you're discriminating against those who can't be vaccinated. Um, and that is not going to be helpful really to uh, incentivize vaccination. Um, that guidance was withdrawn uh, because it was uh, released uh, under the Trump administration uh, when it was, you know, kind of a proposal and, and not fully implemented. And it was part of a large number of uh, items of guidance that were withdrawn immediately by the incoming Biden administration for review. But right now we're in limbo. You know, we don't know what the position is in terms of incentivization. Um, and quite frankly, you know, if, if it were up to me, I would say that um, Congress or the administration or, you know, somebody needs to act and say that, well, we're in a pandemic and we want to get out of it. So employers should be allowed to incentivize as much as they want and not um, fear negative consequences from doing that. 
And uh, likewise, employers should be allowed to have on-site uh, vaccination programs without implicating other concerns. Uh, there are some other things they should be allowed to do. They should be allowed to ask um, about your antibody status. Right now, the ADA said that is, uh, that is prohibited as an inquiry. Um, that has, in, in some other areas, been used as a substitute for vaccination mandates. If you have the antibodies, you already have in your system what the vaccine is supposed to develop. Um, so there are some things that are, that are out there that are problematic for employers right now. Um, and those may change, they may change very rapidly. That's just something for counsel in the field to pay close attention to. And you know, hopefully something will be done about that. Um, ideally something that will maximize the ability of employers to incentivize and encourage and facilitate vaccination. But if not, at least something that very much clarifies um, what employers can and can't do without potentially getting into litigation for them. Right. So as we um, wrap up, I have one more quick question. Um, we talked through what we have to consider related to vaccine injuries. For example, when a hospital is providing vaccines for its employees, in other words, how what laws are implicated by being both the employer and the distributor? Mm. Well, that is also a very interesting question. Um, and I would preface by saying that so far vaccine injuries have been uh, very low with respect to the vaccines that have been approved. Uh, but there will inevitably always be some, some very small portion of the population that has a negative reaction to vaccination. Uh, and there are, you know, there are injuries beyond just whether the vaccine is, is effective or not, or whether the vaccine is safe or not. Um, you can have a shoulder injury as a result of someone using the wrong technique to administer the vaccine. And that's just, you know, the needle goes into a, the wrong spot um, yeah. and you can have some negative consequences from that. Yeah. Um, right now, all injuries that are in any way related to the vaccine are covered by the PrEP Act, which was invoked at the very beginning of the pandemic. And that immunizes uh, administrators, distributors, manufacturers of the vaccine from any liability, from any tort liability uh, for any injury caused in the course of uh, administering the vaccine um, unless there's actual willful misconduct involved, which is of course a very high standard. And it's not something that we are seeing in, in any of the um, administrations that have gone on so far. There hasn't been anything that would kind of invoke that. Uh, an element of the PREP Act is a thing called the CICP, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Uh, most vaccines, the childhood vaccines, are covered under a thing called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, the NVICP, um, which provides a certain amount of compensation for people who are injured by uh, the routine childhood vaccinations. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccines aren't covered under that program. Uh, there would have to be a notice and comment uh, promulgation by the Secretary of HHS for that to happen. And it's, it's really not likely to happen because they're already covered under this other program set up under the PREP Act. Um, the CICP provides for compensation for serious injuries. Um, and that's not really uh, a phrase that has been tested a great deal. 
um, but it does provide compensation where that is the case uh, for anyone who experiences an injury relating to the vaccine and that injury manifests within one year of receiving the vaccination. And uh, I do know that there are CICP claims that have been filed at this point. Um, people have contacted me asking, you know, are you an attorney who files CICP claims, mm -hmm. uh, which I am not. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the CICP is a program that is available. Uh, it is administrative, unlike um, certain other compensation programs. So it's almost like asking for a social security adjustment or something like that. You fill out some paperwork, you provide some documentation, you send it to a functionary and they make the decision and there isn't really a process of appeal. You know, if you don't like their answer, you can, you can ask their supervisor to look at it. Um, that in, in our experience isn't likely to change things. So, you know, it's a very sort of one shot, one stop process. Um, and it isn't one that has played out to a degree where we have litigation, where we can look at it and say, okay, this is um, what the standards for uh, overturning a denial of a CICP claim are or something like that. That inevitably will happen now because there will be some number of people who, you know, they receive the vaccination and they say, oh, I, I, I have this long-term um, negative repercussion from that or something that I, I believe is associated with that. Um, and they'll go through that process and, and perhaps not be satisfied with what they get from the CICP and seek to overturn that in the courts. Um, and that's you know, very much something that will develop in the future and that we'll watch uh, with great interest to see uh, how that applies because the CICP is going to be the method for seeking compensation for serious injuries related to the COVID vaccination probably for the next couple of years. The PrEP Act invocation, um, when it was declared in February of 2020, uh, asserts that the PrEP Act is in force until October of 2024. Now that can change. The administration can at some point say, well, now we feel that the pandemic has passed and we're going to withdraw it. But you know, they're really not legally required to do that. So that may be the case uh, for several years. And you know, we will just have to see how that develops as well. Right. So I guess you know, the, the whole theme here is that we'll have to take every scenario as a unique scenario and as employ you know, healthcare employers and healthcare employees, um, every scenario will be different and we'll have to look at what's going on at the time in regards to the law and, um, and the specific scenario to address. Yes, and, and very much keep track of things as right. new developments arise yeah. and, right. you know, well, thank you, Brian, for sharing your insights on vaccine law today. It's a topic front and center for all of our clients, so it's very helpful for those listening. So thank you all for listening today, and we hope you will check out the other top 10 podcasts in this series. Have a great day.